0: Probably no greater question among critics of Christianity, if you will, than the problem, if you will, of suffering. The problem of evil. So the question goes something like this. How could an all-powerful and good God allow the suffering that we see in the world? The logic is something like this. If, if God is all-powerful, And if God is good, then suffering wouldn't exist. But suffering does exist. Therefore, God is either not all-powerful, or he's not good, or neither. So he either wishes he could end suffering and can't, or he's able to end suffering but doesn't care. That's kind of the dilemma that the critic of Christianity and really faith in God generally um, throws our way. So the objectors and the critics uh, drop their mics, assuming the argument is won, right? Well, if God's powerful, God's good, there wouldn't be suffering, and there is. Therefore, your God doesn't exist, or your God is not who you think he is. But really, you don't even have to think about the, the critics of Christianity, Right, and the big apologetic debates and things like that, this is just among Christians themselves probably the biggest question, the biggest challenge to our faith and our relationship with God. We, see, we look at our broken world. We look around us and we see oppression and poverty, racism, wars, genocide, natural disasters. And we scratch our heads. Where is God? Why does he allow all of this in his world? You don't have to look around you. You can look at your own life. We look at ourselves and we see that we are not immune to the brokenness and the suffering around us. We experience the same griefs and losses that everyone else does. Sickness, death, failed relationships, shattered dreams, ruined reputations chronic loneliness, and we wonder, what is God doing? What is God doing? Yet, even in that place, in our own pain and suffering, we're not willing to let go of either of those two premises, either that God is all-powerful and that God is good. We cling to those, and yet we suffer. And so we're left asking that big famous nagging three-letter question. Why? Right? Why does all of this happen? Why did God allow my loved one to die? Why did God allow my marriage to end in divorce? Why did God allow that Dream that I had held on to for so long and worked so hard for to come crashing to the ground. Why? That's the question that keeps us up at night. Our journey through the Gospel of John takes us deep into these waters today. So I'm invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter eleven. John eleven. While you're turning there, here's a quick review of how John has led us to this point in Jesus' journey. So in chapter 10, we saw Jesus in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, uh, declaring himself to be the good shepherd and emphasizing once again the unique uh, union that he enjoys with God the Father. I and the Father are one, right, uh, uniting himself to God the Father. This landed him, of course, in hot water with the Pharisees and the temple leaders who attempted to arrest him yet again, unsuccessfully, because his hour had not yet come. That's kind of a repeated theme in John's Gospel. Jesus makes a statement, the religious leaders get offended and try to arrest him, and Jesus escapes because his hour had not yet come. The appointed time for him to go to the cross for sinners is not yet. Yet arrived. However, we're getting close to it in John's narrative. John chapter 11 takes us right up to the foothills of the mountain of Calvary, if you will. So Jesus retreated at the end of chapter 10 across the Jordan River to the east where he had been baptized and where John's gospel opened with John the Baptist baptizing and proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God. And uh, Chapter 10, verse 40 tells us he went across the Jordan and there he remained. That is for a period of a few months from about December until March or so when the Passover would begin, Jesus remained outside of Jerusalem across the Jordan uh, where his ministry kind of began. He remained there. That is until today in John 11, verse 1. Now, just another quick review of where we've been, John has been writing about signs that Jesus performs. These miraculous acts of power that were intended to be signs pointing toward the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the promised Messiah. And so uh, he said at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so to this point in the gospel, he has given us six of the seven signs that he is going to record for us. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding. In chapter 4, we saw him heal uh, an official's son, from a distance, actually, just with a word. In chapter 5, we saw him heal a paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, in chapter 6, we saw him feed a multitude of thousands with what amounted to a lunchable. In that same chapter, we saw him walking upon the water toward his disciples. And then in chapter 9, we saw him heal a man who had been blind from birth. So we have seen six signs. And the seventh and probably most impressive, if you will, the most dramatic sign that John will record for us, will happen in John chapter 11. You see, he's going to the village of Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he can be raised, he must die. So instead of plunging ahead to the happy ending, and he's raised and everybody's happy, it's good for us to slow down, to weep with the mourners, to grieve with the friends and family to feel the tension of sadness and suffering in the time before Jesus makes everything right again. And so we turn to John 11, and today we will pause the story with the death of Lazarus and ask the Holy Spirit what wisdom we can gain by observing the tragedy of death through the vantage point of Jesus, the giver of life. Let me read for you the first 16 verses of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "'Let us go to Judea again.' The disciples said to him, "'Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. "'And are you going there again?' These verses point out to us three important purposes of God behind our suffering. Three important purposes of God in our suffering. Number one, your suffering is designed for God's glory. Look in verse four. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. This illness does not lead to death. Well, of course it leads to death, right? He knows it, and he declares as much in verse 14 when he says, Lazarus has died. So he can't mean that Lazarus isn't going to die from this illness because he does die, and he knows he's going to die, and he says that he's died, and then that's when he decides to go. But he's both hinting at what's to come, knowing that death won't be the end of Lazarus' story, And pointing to the purpose behind the sickness. It doesn't lead to death. Meaning, death isn't the purpose. Death isn't the end. Death is just a necessary step in God's plan to glorify himself through Lazarus. It doesn't lead to death. That's not the ultimate end. That's not the ultimate aim. The aim is what? The glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, at first, this doesn't sound like great news to us. It doesn't give us great comfort on the face of it to say, I know I'm suffering, but it's okay because God gets glory. Because I think if we're honest, we'd usually be willing for God to be glorified a little less if it meant that our suffering could be a little shorter or a little less intense. If we're being honest. I'd rather suffer a little less, even if that means God doesn't get glorified quite as much. It seems like a decent trade-off to us. But let's think about what Jesus is saying. Let's think about what it means that God is glorified, that God gets glory, that the Son of God is glorified through suffering. First of all, Jesus links his own glory with the glory of the Father. So where he said, this sickness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, that is God the Father, that the Son of God may be glorified. So the glorifying of the Son of God and the glory of God the Father are united to such a degree that when Jesus is honored, the Father is honored. When Jesus is praised, the Father is praised. When Jesus is obeyed and worshipped, the Father is obeyed and worshipped, and he is pleased in that. And so once again, as we've seen this theme throughout John's Gospel, Jesus reiterating that union between himself and the Father. I and the Father are one. I only do what I see the Father doing. I speak on the Father's authority. He and I are one and the same. And once again, the Son of God may be glorified in it, and it is for God's glory, are one and the same. So that leads to a question, how? How will the Son of God be glorified through this sickness? Well, the most obvious answer is that he's going to raise him. Lazarus is sick, and he's going to die. But Jesus is going to go there, and he's going to bring him back to life. That's amazing. That's going to get glory. That's going to get people's attention. People are going to go, wait a minute. We're not dealing with an ordinary prophet here, an ordinary teacher here. This man is... And raise the dead that is going to get honor and power and, and, and respect and worship for Jesus the power and authority and sovereignty of Jesus Christ will be seen and known without dispute when he raises the dead. So in this moment in this context, Lazarus is going to die and it's going to get glory for God because Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. We know that's going to happen. Jesus is going to be glorified. Okay, great. So Jesus gets glory because he demonstrates his power over life and death and his sovereignty and his authority. But why should I care, right? Why is Jesus being glorified good news for me? That ought to be the question you're asking at this point. Let me jump ahead to a few chapters to John chapter 17. In this so-called high priestly prayer Jesus says in chapter 17, verses 20-24, through in his prayer to the Father, I do not ask for these only, that is, the disciples that were with him at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us, by the way. We are those who have believed in him through the word of the apostles recorded in the scriptures. I pray for those who will believe in me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory of Jesus Christ translates into joy for us. Jesus is praying for us that he would be glorified so that his glory could be ours. So that we could share with him in the glory that he receives. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us uh, that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, when we will share in his glory if we also suffer with him. That's what he says in Romans eight seventeen. We like the glory part, I don't really love the suffering part so much. Can I get the glory without the suffering? No, that's not how this works. Jesus had to go through the cross in order to, have, to be exalted and have bestowed upon him the name above every name, as Philippians two eleven tells us. So the glory of Jesus translates to joy for us because we share in his glory. It reminds you of 2 Thessalonians chapter one verse twelve which we talked about last week and looking at kind of New Year's resolutions. 2 Thessalonians 1.12 tells us that we would be glorified in Him. right? So he's praying that God would fulfill our resolve for good and our work of faith so that He would be glorified in us and us in Him. We get to share in the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So His position... His position of honor and respect in heaven and in the universe translates into good and joy for us. The reason that we should care about God's glory, apart from the fact that we should care about God for his own sake, is that God's glory translates into joy for us. Our joy is directly linked to his glory. So how is God glorified in your suffering? All right, so I get that. So I can say, all right, God is glorified, and when God is glorified and Jesus is, gets glorified, I get more joy. I get to experience him more. I get to, to, to treasure him more and see him more for who he is, and that translates into peace and joy and, and resolve and, and, and life for me. But how does that happen in suffering? It makes more sense to say that God is glorified through our winning, through our victory all the time, through our getting rich in Jesus' name, right? That's the stuff that we think of most naturally. God's going to be get glorified when I have the most awesome life in my neighborhood and everybody knows this because I've got God. Nope. That's not how God works. That's not how the Christian life works. The Christian life is marked with suffering. The road that we travel is paved with hardship and trial. Jesus himself promised it to his disciples. In this world you will have trouble but take heart for i have overcome the world how has god glorified in my suffering few answers to that first peter 2 19 and 20 we learn that when you endure hardship with righteous character and hope in god you glorify god it says it's a gracious thing when you in the sight of god when you endure hardship when you suffer unjustly so that is if our Uh, our character and our intentions and our heart is pure before God and we suffer for no result of sin, not just consequences of our own dumb choices, but when we suffer righteously, it pleases God. God gets glory in that. When insult and affliction come into your life, yet you faithfully serve the Lord and trust in his goodness, you glorify God. When a loved one unexpectedly passes away, And yet, in the pain and shock, you turn to Christ for peace. You seek His voice in the Scriptures. You wait on comfort from His hand. And you demonstrate that He is worthy of your worship and of your trust, even when the worst thing imaginable comes your way. Like Job, you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When the worth and goodness of God is visible in your life through suffering, it glorifies Jesus. Because Jesus is seen as a treasure that satisfies beyond the fleeting stuff of this world. We don't say, I got rich because of God. Because how long are those riches going to last you? You can't take them with you. But the glory of Jesus that he is storing up for us to share in, That lasts forever. That's why he says, don't build up treasures for yourself here where moth and rust destroy, right? But store up treasures in heaven because those will last forever. When Jesus is glorified in your suffering, it leads to greater joy for you. And Jesus knew that For Lazarus and his family. He knew that the suffering that was going to be required by the death of Lazarus was going to result in greater glory for himself and therefore greater joy for his people. And those two things are intimately linked. Glorifying God leads to your joy. Number two, your suffering is an expression of God's love. Your suffering is an expression of God's love. It doesn't feel like that to us usually, but it's the truth. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus' love for Lazarus and this family is made explicit and emphasized in this passage. And so John tells us in verse 3 that the sisters sent a message to Jesus that said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Mary and Martha know well, uh, that Jesus loves Lazarus. There is an affection and a warmth and a depth of, uh, of love for Lazarus that he shares. So they would say, not like our brother is ill, or even Lazarus is ill, but the one that you love is ill. In verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Just tells us plainly, Jesus loved them. He felt affection for them. He cared for them. Which is why the next word is so stunning to us. Verse 6 begins with the word so. This is the Greek un, which means therefore. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He was the one whom Jesus loved. And therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited. That doesn't make sense to us, right? We want that sentence to end, He loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he got the next bus to Bethany, right? He was out of there. We are going right now, and we're going to keep anything bad from happening, right? That's what we want to see. But that's not what it says. He loved them, and so, therefore, he waited. He waited until what? He waited until Lazarus was dead. That's what he says to his disciples down in verse 14. Lazarus has died, now let's go. He waited until he knew Lazarus was dead before they went. Sometimes love doesn't look like we expect. Sometimes God's love doesn't take the shape that we want it to. Sometimes we think, well, since God loves me, that will mean I won't suffer very much. That will mean I will get a promotion at work. That will mean that my family will stay healthy and happy and together. But that's not life. That's not reality. And so when the suffering comes, when the hardship enters our lives, we have this tension. We have this dilemma that we've got to figure out. I'm suffering. Does that mean God doesn't love me? God doesn't care about me? Does that mean God loves me and wishes he could help, but he can't? Right? Back to the classic dilemma. God is all good and God is all powerful and suffering wouldn't exist, right? What, what is going on? Does God love me? Well, John tells us here that the suffering that's going to come into the lives of Lazarus' family is a direct result of God's love for them, his love for them. So how? How is this an expression of Jesus' love for Lazarus and his family? Well, he knew that his staying... And waiting for a couple of days was going to mean that Lazarus would die. He knew that. He knew that the family didn't expect an immediate resurrection, right? We read the beginning of John chapter 11 knowing the end of John chapter 11, right? So we go, oh, he's going to die, but don't worry about it. It's only going to last like a paragraph, right? That's not how they experienced it. Their brother died. He was gone. They lived in that grief and heartache and shock. Their brother is gone. He knew the family didn't expect this immediate resurrection, so they would experience all the sadness and pain that you would expect someone to feel when their loved one dies. His decision to delay the trip brought this suffering into their lives. Because if he had gone faster and healed Lazarus, would have spared them all that pain, right? Isn't that wrong? Isn't that cruel of Jesus to do that? Only if that's the end. Only if he doesn't have a greater purpose, a bigger plan, a deeper joy to impart on the other side of it. Sometimes the only pathway to joy is through hardship and sorrow. Because that's where we come to know Jesus in the fellowship of his suffering. Because remember, Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. If Jesus is our example, why should we think for a minute that our lives are going to be rosy and without trouble? We're walking the path that he walked. He was a suffering servant. This is where his sympathetic heart can touch ours in a unique and special way. Because he suffered like we suffer. Jesus knew that their suffering would be worth it in the end. Because it would give them the opportunity to see the glory of the Son of God on full display. And demonstrating His power over death and life. And remember, the greater His glory, the deeper our joy. It's good for us for Jesus to be glorified in the midst of our suffering because it leads to deeper joy. A joy that we couldn't get any other way. If there was like an option, option A is... Your life is smooth sailing and pain free and perfect and then you go to heaven. And option B is a road marked with trials and loss and grief and suffering and shattered dreams and then eventually you'll make it to heaven. Most of us would probably go, dude, give me path A. I want that smooth sailing path. But if you knew that the joy of path B was infinitely greater than the joy of path A on the other side, you would be wise to choose path B. It would be wise to say, God, I trust you with the hardships that come into my life because I know you're building something for me. I know you're storing up something for me. A weight of glory beyond compare is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. This momentary and light affliction, he said, is, is building up for us a weight of glory beyond all compare. So when you suffer, don't assume it means God doesn't love you. No, in fact, you should take heart in knowing that it may well be that the suffering you're experiencing is just the context in which God wants to show you new and deeper layers of his love than you've ever known. Your suffering is an expression of God's love, even though it doesn't feel that way in the moment of suffering. But when we Turn to him and we trust in him and we lean on him the more we find a deeper intimacy with him we find a deeper communion with our suffering savior and the joy that it affords for us after the fact is greater than we could hope for finally your suffering is to deepen your faith your suffering is intended by God to deepen your faith look at verse 15 after he tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. says in verse 15, And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So he says to his disciples, who are going to go with him into Bethany, near Jerusalem, I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. That's what Jesus is after. Jesus is after strengthening the faith Strengthening the heart of the belief of his followers. And he knows that this suffering and the glory that's going to be displayed through it is necessary for the deepening of their faith. He knew that the disciples' faith in him would be strengthened by what they would see in Bethany. And he knew there was no way for them to see it without Lazarus first dying. Do you want your faith in Jesus to grow? Do you want to deepen your walk with God? Do you want to know Him more? Experience more spiritual fruit in your life? I'm sure that you do. I know that you want that. I want that. Then, friend, don't despise the suffering that God allows into your life by His loving hand. And when it comes, which it will, if you're not suffering now, you will sooner or later, don't waste it. Don't miss the opportunity to depend more on Jesus, to trust his grace, to believe his promises, of future reward. Sometimes we don't live with the future in view. We don't live with eternity in our minds. There's that old uh, phrase, that old saying that says that somebody was so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. Right? Like you're so focused on like, I'm going to heaven and I don't care what happens. That like you're not doing any good to anybody because your head's just in the clouds. I get the point of that, but I totally disagree with that sentiment. I don't think we're heavenly minded enough. I don't think we have our minds enough on the reward that's coming on the other side. On all the glory and the joy and the satisfaction that Jesus is storing up for you to be enjoyed for eternity in his presence. We look to the joy that's the immediate payoff. We want to feel it now. We want the good thing now. We want the pleasure now. The comfort now. Jesus says It's hard right now, but it's going to be better, infinitely better for you if you wait. If you wait on the glory that I'm storing up for you, you will thank me for it. I promise. It's to deepen your faith. In 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 9, Paul says, of himself and his ministry companions and the hardships that they had faced, being imprisoned and beaten and rejected and all this stuff. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely, that is the purpose of all the hardship, was to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Faith in God during seasons of suffering means at least recognizing that there isn't anything else in the world that's worthy of our trust. Paul's suffering taught him to rely on God because it proved to him that there was nothing in himself or anywhere else that could sustain him through it. God's the only chance of sustenance and hope in the midst of hardship. Dustin Shramek, uh, a missionary who lost his infant son, said it this way. After the death of our son Owen, my wife and I often had deep, haunting questions about God and his purposes. But any time we were tempted to turn away from him, we were always confronted with the question, if not God, then whom? If not God, then what? Could we abandon the truth and turn to some other religion? There's no hope for us there, for then we would have to save ourselves. Could we become atheists? There's no hope for us there, for then life would be futile. There is no hope anywhere else because God alone is God, and he alone is holy. So in our suffering, we cling to God and his holiness. And quite honestly, there are times when we cling to him simply because we see that there isn't anything else to hold on to. But I think this is okay. God wants us to see that there isn't anything else to cling to. So the desperate clinging to God and a hope beyond hope that He is working something good and beautiful out of your mess, out of your pain, out of your struggle, keeps you moving forward. It keeps your eye up. And in the end, it will result in greater joy and a deeper faith. So your suffering is not by accident. God is not unaware of your pain that you experience in this life. And far from that, he intends to use it in your life. It's designed for his glory. It's designed as an expression of his love for you. And it's designed to deepen your faith. I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata young woman who was uh, paralyzed in a diving accident as a teenager, became a quadriplegic. Uh, And in an article in July of last year, uh, on the 50th anniversary of this diving accident, she wrote uh, an article uh, that I found on the Gospel Coalition. Um, She's gone on to have an incredible ministry. Uh, her faith in, in Jesus is strong, and she's had this great ministry to the broader Christian world and especially to those who are affected by disabilities. Uh, she's founded a, a, a group called Johnny and Friends, which does a, whole, a lot to kind of educate people about uh, disabilities and helping people to show compassion and, and also providing ministry resources to those uh, with disabilities and affected by disabilities. So she, she concluded this article reflecting on 50 years as a quadriplegic, which is, if you think about it for a few minutes, you, you get, this is serious suffering. right This is a hard life to live. Here's how she concludes her article. Last week, my husband Ken and I were at our Johnny and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big, noisy dining hall when a college-aged volunteer approached me, holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd and asked, Miss Johnny, do you ever think how none of this would be happening were it not for your diving accident? I flashed a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000-foot view of the moment. She's right. How did I get here? It has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in tiny moments breathing in and out, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. What you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. It's the hard but beautiful stuff of which God makes 50 years of your life. Like, when did that happen? I cannot say, but I sure love Jesus for it. Let's pray.